It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I'm John Heilman. And I'm Will Leach. And this is the Culture Caucus, Bloomberg Politics's podcast dedicated to the intersection of politics and culture, culture broadly defined, meaning pretty much everything that doesn't happen in Washington, D.C. We are uh, in the real home stretch of at least this incarnation of the podcast, just as we are in the home stretch of the presidential race. It is, uh, as of this recording, it's Thursday, November the 3rd, 4th. Yes. What date is it, Will? It is the 3rd. It's the 3rd, November 3rd. So it's just five days now until Election Day. Uh, and we are going to have a very special episode here uh, special because of the guest who we have on. We've done pretty well booking guests on the show, I think. Some of them have been very interesting. Some have been glamorous. But uh, the combination of interesting, glamorous, and pertinent in a very particular way to the con- to, to the context and contours and, and the particular dynamics of this presidential race uh, is our guest today, who is the one and only and none other than George Lopez, who I think it's fair to say is um, maybe the most popular Hispanic uh, entertainer in the country. Is that farewell? Yeah, and I would argue has been for a decade now, I think. Yeah, that, right. One of the things that's most impressive is not just his popularity, but his longevity. Yeah, I mean, he's an amazing, amazing guy. And the the story of how George came to be here uh, intersects with uh, a story that all right-thinking people are interesting, interested in at this moment, particularly on this day and this date, which is baseball. I ran into George Lopez at the Dodgers-Cubs uh, game two of the NLCS. We happened to be sitting next to each other in Wrigley Field, and we got to talking. And I asked him, uh, as maybe the most popular uh, and well-known Hispanic entertainer in the country, whether he'd uh, been asked a lot about Donald Trump uh, over the course of 2016. And he said, no, not really. Very few people had, had talked to him about it. And he said he had very strong opinions, and he'd thought about it a lot. And I said, well, you should come on the Culture Caucus and, and talk about those. And he said, great. So uh, that was a couple weeks ago, and now we're here, and we're going to have him on. Um, and as a way of kind of bringing this, um, having an episode that's that that uh, uh, brings us right up to Election Day, I think it's a kind of a, a good thing to discuss a good, a good guest to have on and a good set of discussions to have because, of course, one of the lasting legacies of this campaign will be uh, the way in which uh, Donald Trump alienated, I would say, a, f- a large swath of non-white voters. And if he doesn't end up winning on Tuesday, that will be a large part of why. And so discussing that with someone who is, in fact, a non-white voter, I think, and someone who is very in touch with his community uh, is a kind of an interesting way to close, uh, or at least not to close the podcast, but to, to dedicate ourselves, to occupy ourselves with in this home stretch. Um so, Will, you have some questions for George. Oh, yes, of course. Of course. I, I'm, looking, I'm very excited to talk to him, and not just about uh, the national nightmare that is the Chicago Cubs. Yes. Um, you know, so that is uh, that is a, a thing. Uh, you know, one of the great things about Will Leach is he always has good questions. Will, you're always a man with filled with questions, boundless energy, mm-hmm. lots of uh, in, it, it just curiosity. 
um, beyond measure. <laughs> yes. Um, you're, you're also, a, as everyone knows, whoever has ever, list, ever listened to this podcast before, you're also a huge baseball fan. And so I need for you at this moment, even though it has nothing to do with the topic at hand, I need for you to just tell us a little bit about the experience of being in Cleveland last night for Game 7. Yeah, it was something. It is I will say I was not at the 2011 Game 6 of the World Series, which is the best baseball game I've ever seen on television, but this was the best baseball game I've ever seen in person. And I, you know, I wrote a column about it for Sports on Earth where I write about a lot of sports stuff. And to me, one of the things was amazing. You know, I grew up in Central Illinois. I'm a Cardinals fan, but, you know, I grew up with the University of Illinois. I'm surrounded by Cubs fans. I, we grew up with Cubs fans. And one of the things I found really amazing about the experience of being there was like in the, the, about the sixth inning when the Cubs were up 5-1, and it really looked like they were going to do it. Even my most fatalistic Cub fan friends were texting me, this shit's going to happen now. This is the year. This, this It's finally happening. They're, they're throwing all caution to the wind uh, and saying this is the year. We all knew it. Finally, I can't believe it. They're counting outs. And I wonder at the time, is this how this should happen? Should, should the Cubs breeze through really uh and, and like i shouldn't have to come back for 3-1 deficit but should there be no major drama as they win game seven i wonder if that was the right way to do it like why they've suffered enough why why get their hearts pumping again so when rajai when Raj, rajai davis who hit that home run off our oldest chapman to tie the game in the eighth inning for cleveland when he hit that homer I was sitting next to Phil Rogers, who's a uh, former reporter for the Chicago Tribune and now works for MajorLeagueBaseball.com. I had met him roughly an hour and a half earlier, mostly with a head nod. I tackled him <laughs> and, and, I, and did things with him that may uh, be illegal uh, in many states and are certainly uh, uh, dangerous and not to be uh, uh, done without adult supervision. It was a very exciting thing. It was really an amazing thing to be a part of. So then for the Cubs to come back and do it, as I kind of argued in my piece, it really was perfect because there was that one last moment moment where for for that inning after the after the Indians came back it felt like oh my god maybe the curse is actually real is this the worst possible thing a Cubs fan could go through would be to get this close to get within four outs and then blow we were that close to that happening and all of the this perfect year for the Cubs and all these wonderful things has happened to them and and had this dominant season and this team we focused on for the very beginning and the one that's captured all of America's imagination if they would get four outs away and then blow it would be the most Cubs thing ever and I argued that was kind of why it was perfect for them to over to be reminded one last time of what the last 108 years were like right before you were able to extinguish it. It was a pretty amazing thing to be there for, even if you I was, uh, in fact, a, a, a sad Cardinals fan. Yeah, you know, I'll say, I mean, it was an incredible game to watch on television. I saw part of it. Um, I was out in Salt Lake City, Utah last yesterday, and, and I saw part of it. Uh, on my phone and part of it at a bar at the airport and part of it on the plane. And people were obviously everywhere you went uh, that there were screens anywhere. People were fixated and watching the game. Um, you know, a lot of there was cheering and yelling and howling throughout Salt Lake City Airport throughout the most dramatic parts there in the eighth inning. And, I, and it, it, it kind of made me think about one of the things that people have been saying over the course of these last days as the series has played out, which is, you know, that this was an incredible series. A bit, you know, whether you were a Cubs fan or, or a, an Indians fan or not, people felt good about those two teams being in the World Series. You know, that, yeah. that there are two long-suffering cities, long-suffering teams, having them face off with each other. And then the series to play out in the way in which it did, going seven games, just in and of itself kind of a, a, a great thing, doesn't always happen. And then, you know, for it to end with this incredible uh, thing, where both teams left everything on the field, um, a game both teams played with a lot of heart, 
um, and you ended up with uh, with a conclusion that, frankly, e- had either one of them won, it would have been crushing, obviously, for the Cubs if they lost. But you, you could, if, unless you were a Cubs fan or a or an Indians fan, you kind of didn't care how it ended. It would have been a great series no matter what. And for a lot of people that I've heard over the course of this last week, as they have really hit the breaking point on the presidential campaign and felt like, you know, I've been I've been swimming through the national conversation has been one that's been like taking a bath in a, a river of toxic sludge now for weeks upon end. People really, I thought, really relished the diversion of the World Series to a possibly greater degree than I've ever seen before. People were, you hear people saying, you know, can we make this World Series please go on for another week? <laughs> just so just so it could be the other thing going on in parallel all the way through to election day. So I would have something else that was engrossing and captivating and exciting and fun to focus on. So I could turn away from, you know, the horror uh, that the presidential election has become. I don't know. Did you have that sense from, I mean, I know you were more in, you were more in the middle of it, right? You were right. in Cleveland, then you were in Chicago, then you were in Cleveland. But I, I can't imagine that it wasn't, that there wasn't some sense of that in those two great American cities too. Oh, yeah. There's there's no question. You know, of course, like all reporters covering any of it in person, I was, of course, also covering it by Twitter, as, as most reporters covered anything anymore. And so certainly I was very aware of that conversation. It was really kind of an amazing thing. There was a great joke going on around Twitter uh, on, on game night that, wait, is this going to be a test case? Is this a test run for Tuesday? Like all the crazy emotions and everybody up and up and down one way. And I certainly hope not, because if it's as intense and close as uh, as that game was, but you add, of course, politics and all the emotion and, and anger and frustration to go with that. I'm not sure we'll survive the evening. So I do I do think that it's I you do feel bad for Cleveland in a, in one way. And that if Cleveland were playing any team other than the Cubs in any other context, they or if frankly if they, the city of Cleveland had not just won a championship three week three months earlier, the the big story would be Cleveland. It's all they haven't won a champion. Not, they are now the team in Major League Baseball that's gone the longest without winning a championship. And outside the Arizona Cardinals, the longest team in all of professional the four major professional sports never won a championship. In any other year. They would be the underdog story, but of course, there was there just bad luck to be to be playing the Cubs. So yeah, but I do think that it was, you know, th- one of the things I found fascinating though, in the recent years of covering sports. You know, when I I started Deadspin in two thousand five, and one of the fun parts about Deadspin was I was very conscious about like saying, listen, politics are a part of sports, and they are part of because they're a part of the planet. They're they're part of everything that we do in the world, so you can never entirely separate them. However, I did want this to be a place where, like, you could, like the spot, politics gets ugly, and it gets dangerous, and it gets nasty, and people get mean to one another, and. Some sports, I think, for a lot of people on both sides of the political spectrum, is a way to take a step back from that, and and, and a way to to get away from it for a little bit. You can't ever truly get away from it, but I understand why people would want to. So, and I find that in the last few years, sports is becoming. It's a lot harder to do that for people. I think that that uh, you know it it's harder to find those things. The thing I love about sports is if my team wins, I am happy, and if my team loses, I am sad. And there is no there's there's a beautiful the beauty and the simplicity of that. And nothing is actually like that in the world, particularly not in politics. So I think that that the Cubs were one of those stories where people tried to bring in the the fact that the Ricketts are big uh, first were anti-Trump people and now are big Trump people and the owners of the Cubs, and they tried to 
they bring in, you know, I think the, the certainly the Indians uh, logo and mascot is something that I think Major League Baseball is going to want to do something about. There are political aspects to this, but it does feel like in that moment, no one's talking about politics. No one's talking about mascots. No one's talking about the owners. No one's talking about the election. They're talking about this amazing thing that's happened that has a zero sum ending to it. And that's kind of the beauty of sports. And I think why people really kind of gravitated toward the ratings have been unbelievable for this World Series. I think it's one of the reasons that they've really gravitated toward it. It's been an escape from uh, from the rather dreary daily, hourly, minute news cycle. Yeah. I mean, you know, and I think, as I said it before, I think it's, you know, there's the dreariness, but there's also kind of the, the, the kind of terror, the, ter- the, ter- the, yeah. the terrible, the terribleness of it. And, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, like I say, we're, we're kind of coming, you know, when you think about, you know, we're kind of coming to, you know, the end of this, of this uh, election. And, you know, we spent a lot of time on the last podcast talking about, you know, relatively straightforwardly talking about the presidential election. You know, one of the things that I, you know, we're, we're now starting to, 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 to kind of look to me, kind of look forward to, you know, what will happen after the election. And, you know, there, there's, there's only, I think really one, one for, for a lot of people, there's the, the, the only, there are a lot of people out there obviously who don't like Donald Trump and, and he's provoked obviously very intense reactions that are very negative. Um, and you know, he's done, when I say he's provoked it, I mean, he's provoked hmm. it. I mean, he's, right. you know, done things to, Was to offend it. Right, right, right. Right. I mean, and just not, it's not like, and, and also you're not being, it's not like just because people are like you know, misinterpreting him or being overly sensitive. It's like he's gone out of his way in a lot of ways to offend large swaths of the uh, American electorate. And and you know, George Lopez, who's going to be on and be here in just a minute, um, is is someone who represents one of those swaths um, of the electorate that has for who have, who Trump has kind of serially offended. And so you know, for a lot of people right now in this very intense moment, you know, and and people are very intensely. You know, there's been a, a sense of, of this campaign as being more intense than any campaign previously, more intense than any I've covered before, where both sides feel like the stakes are extraordinarily high. You know, Democrats who think that if Trump becomes president, it will be the apocalypse, and Republicans who think the same if Hillary Clinton becomes president. There's there's a there, there, as we've gotten closer and closer, you know, there's only one respect it seems to me for a lot of people who really are terrified by the prospect of Trump winning, in which uh, they will be a little bit sad. Um, if he uh, loses and it's and it pales by comparison to how sad they would be if he won but the one way in which it was sad is that he will be he will no longer be uh, such a provide so much comic fodder you know um, you know Trump is Trump 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 as president would be a lot better target uh, for people like George Lopez and for comedians um, like Alec Baldwin who we talked about previously you know that's the only way in which you can imagine there are a fair number of people who will be looking up and saying man I'm really glad that Trump's not president but I really would have enjoyed kicking the shit out of him uh, on television for the next four years yeah well until you are arrested for it of course but uh, right. <laughs> but uh, yes, and throw, yes I... thrown, in the, thrown in the stockade right drawn <laughs> yes. quartered deported uh, put in a black site someplace yeah all those things yeah, one of the yeah, I mean, to me, just the notion, just to get on the Trump a little bit. One of the notions that's really amazing to me about Trump throughout this campaign is how, you know, Louis C.K. kind of talked about this, uh, and he he endorsed Hillary Clinton in kind of an awkward, strange way, I thought, uh, on Conan O'Brien's show. But he talked about how one of the things he really had a hard time with Trump was this notion that Trump has such a hard time handling slights. And anytime he's offended, he just can't let it go and he must push back, regardless of whoever the one that going after him is. And we've seen that in some pretty harrowing ways, frankly, uh, in this campaign. But one of the things that Luis K pointed out was that like part of the job of being president of the United States is taking all of that and being that target, tar- tar- being that target and letting people come after you and, and knowing that by being in the arena 
like you are people the old remember the old thanks Obama idea uh, that that no matter what was wrong with someone's lives oh thanks Obama it's your fault whether it was joking or not there's something kind of inherently in the national character to our presidents are never going to be too popular. We always, we're always going to find some way to deride them or have some fun with them or play around with them. And so it would, to me, of, of the many unprecedented things that a President Trump would bring, certainly in the entertainment realm, the idea of the thin-skinned president who reacts to every slight... In a, like, imagine the President of the United States. Imagine the, the tweets that Donald Trump sent out after seeing Alec Baldwin on SNL. Imagine him sending them out as president. Like all of a sudden, it's a, yes. it's, a, it's an edict. <laughs> like it's an edict. Like it's an actual decree. And uh, there, there's something kind of about that that still blows my mind to think about that. That just the idea of what satire is. It would almost, if if anything, it would almost weaponize. Uh, to use the one of the buzzwords of the campaign this year, almost weaponize satire in that it would actually like now it's very easy for me to write a satirical little bonbon about oh here's what a Trump president would president would be like ha 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 look at me this all, I will impress all my little blogger nerdy Ivy League friends, but it would be another thing to make it an actual almost an act of protest to do satire, which is kind of what it would feel in a Trump administration. I I think is a, is a thing that that we I think because the type of people that write a lot of satire and are into kind of uh, political comedy, they still, even this close to the campaign and even I think 538 has has Trump as a 33% chance, which is a really big chance. That's like the odds of Wade Boggs getting a hit. Like that's a really good chance of him becoming president. And we, they still haven't wrapped their mind around the possibility and the, re, the reality of it. And I think it's something to, to really kind of uh, a fascinating idea, the idea of how do you satirize a president that could come after you with the power of the executive branch and the U.S. government for mocking him and has shown that he would be very eager to do so. Right. Yes. And I think also uh, it's, 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 there's that, right? That's a very kind of pointillist notion of it, right? Um, you know, like if I attack this person, he might uh, in some way, there might be retribution exacted upon me, right? But I think, again, it's one of the things that I that I have found fascinating about this campaign. And one of the things that, again, I want to talk to George about is like this notion that, you know, how do you deal with it if you are, um, if you're the, if you're not just, uh, if you're the member of a community that feels uh, like the, not not merely that the person who is potentially the president of the United States, not merely that that person doesn't represent your interests well, or not merely that that person is, is hostile to your interests, but that that person is overtly hostile to your interests and is is not only that but is is kind of would would like to is explicitly campaigning on the notion of 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 taking the country uh, backwards to a world in which the progress that has so benefited you and your community no longer uh, exists like it, it, someone who's basically kind of saying you know the, the premise of what they're arguing as a political matter is that uh, a, a world where is that the world that 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 has that has evolved in a way that has been although still difficult has been overwhelmingly kind of in the direction of of making your life better. If you were if you were a Hispanic American, for instance, or if you're African American, you still have a lot of problems and a lot of challenges. But your life is as a community, your life is better than it was in the 1950s or in the 1920s or in the 1800s, right? And even just in the last 20 or 30 years, there's been you know marked progress. And again, not perfect, not at all have we solved all the problems, but you've, you things have the notion of an increasingly multicultural America and increasingly tolerant America. Those are all things that by and large are kind of marks of gradual incremental uh, movement towards the better for you. And to have someone who not only kind of is thin-skinned 
when attacked or criticized or satirized or parodied, but someone who is essentially built as the premise of his campaign the notion that all of that progress was a mistake and that you want to somehow basically say, let's go back to an America where uh, all of these groups that have made all these advances are once again marginalized and not in an, not just implicitly marginalized, but explicitly marginalized. I'm going to start my campaign by talking about uh, by, by talking about Mexicans and rapists and then move on throughout the rest of the campaign by uh, overtly, again, kind of criticizing, you know, Judge Curiel and saying that, you know, because he was Mexican, which of course he wasn't, but because he was Mexican, he couldn't do his job as a judge. You know, textbook definition of racism. How do you... How, you know, the way in which comedy works well in, in, is to, you know, you, where you kind of have, you're able to, to, to be often vicious and satirize someone, but not, you're doing it from, from not from a posture of this person poses an existential threat to me. So there's just a bunch of interesting things to try to unpack there, it seems to me. And it would have been, a, it's a fascinating thought experiment to think about what the culture would do with a President Trump, not with the idea of a, of, a Trump, of a Trump presidency, not with candidate Trump, but with President Trump. What would the culture do with that? Uh, what would it make of him? Would that be, uh, I mean, I imagine it would produce some kind of incredible art, but it would also be a very kind of precarious situation, I think, in American life. Yeah, and also, frankly, you couldn't get away with the Jimmy Fallon bullshit anymore. It's probably the best yeah. way to put that. You really would yeah. not be able to get away with that. You know, the idea that, like, we're all just having fun here. There's no there's no edge to my comedy. It's just funny. Like, comedy is, the, the, you know, the great comedians will tell you comedy is about tension. Comedy is about it's about taking something that people care about or, or something that is important or something that is sanctified or something that is an institution and trying to knock it down. And it does feel, and I think the, the culture has kind of gone this way a little bit, too, uh, the idea of, well, well, we a large part of comedy too is not trying to push the apple cart too much. You really, those have been the successful guys. That's, that's what Letterman kind of talked about that at the, uh, toward the end of his career. The idea that uh, he never really considered himself edgy, but the idea that you know people don't want to be pressed in interviews, and they, 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 there's a certain sort of level of comedy that people did not a direction they didn't want to go. That's why Jay Leno constantly beat him uh, in, in the ratings. I you wonder if under a Trump presidency, the idea of that kind of empty all four segments comedy like there will be no all four segments in, of anything <laughs> anymore it's hard to imagine that in, in uh, anything in a trump world not being somewhat divisive in some way if just because he'll comment on it all himself so you know i think that right. uh, the what it would do to comedy it would uh, again it would certainly we would have the funniest uh, Leavenworth would be hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Rikers would be the best place in the world to see comedy because uh, you wonder which direction that would go to. Right. Of course, on the other hand, you know, if, if the most likely outcome happens and Hillary Clinton becomes president, I mean, it won't be as bad for comedy as Barack Obama being president. Because, you know, as we all remember, <laughs> right. you think back back to eight years ago and all the comedians were like, oh, my God, like we're going to have to like Barack Obama. That's going to be a hard guy. There's not a lot of material to work there, work with there. You know, he's a you know, he's a relatively, relatively, as a personality, he's a relatively bland figure, right? How are we going to make fun of this guy? They eventually found ways to make fun of him, but uh, not in the ways that, you know, George W. Bush, for instance, was posed, was a so much riper and so much more fun of a target for uh, the culture to, to mock. You know, now you got Hillary Clinton, and just as a, as a, as a target, you know, she's, uh, not nearly as much fun as Trump would be. But on the other hand, you also will now have Bill Clinton. So, you know, there's compensating virtue, I guess, in, just in terms of the world of comedy. Um, there's a, a the, you, you kind of think, well, you know, Hillary's not that much fun to make fun of, but we, we got we got the big dog in the Oval in the, back in the White House. So there's uh, there's some opportunities there.
Yeah, and I think one key, I think another thing that people struggle with Obama is Obama is kind of in on the joke. Like, he's not necessarily funny. I think he can be funny, and he's shown that he can be funny. But he's also kind of in on the joke. Like, he's he's yeah. like it's always amazing to me anytime he'll come on a new show. He was on Samantha Bee uh, last week, and he just yeah. instantly seemed to fit in on Samantha Bee's show in a way that Hillary Clinton never fits in anywhere on any of these shows. Even when she does well, she still feels like this foreign figure that's coming on the show, whereas Obama seems to always kind of understand the basic kind of tenets of comedy in that way. And to me, that's what I think that's been the real struggle to, to get Obama. It's not that like he's not easily mocked. It's just that he rolls with it so well. He doesn't like there's a level where obviously he's the president of the United States. He takes himself seriously, but he certainly is aware of how to come across as not taking himself too seriously. Whatever your thoughts about Donald Trump or, or Hillary Clinton, one th- element they both share is taking themselves very seriously yep. <laughs> and, not, and yep. not being in on the joke. So I think that will be an advantage for for comedians with whoever wins because they're they're very easily mocked people. I mean, I actually think Kate McKinnon does a pretty terrific job at getting the the the. the 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 intelligence of Hillary and the drive of Hillary, but also the little part of Hillary that's just not that that's just not really doesn't feel human <laughs> it's probably right. the best way to put it. and she gets that across very well and while still having that humanity peek out and then then uh, kate mckinnon's hillary tried to stamp it down like i feel like that is actually a very clever way to go at her but she, yeah. hillary clinton is always going to do some awkward strange things on camera and they'll be easily mocked because of that all right uh so uh i'm john Hallman and you're i think i'm still will leach Awesome. That's great. Good to know. I just want to make sure that you were still Will Leach and you hadn't been like snatched by a body snatcher and replaced replaced by someone who sounded a lot like Will Leach, but was uh, <laughs> just like better in some way. You know, like, post uh, Cubs. Post Cubs. I who knows who I am anymore. Right. Post Cubs World uh, Series. I could be anyone. Now, Will, just to remind people right before we take the break, this is the Culture Caucus, and you can find it where and what are you supposed to do when you do find it or when you listen to us on this podcast. What what are you supposed to watch as an audience member, as a listener? What are your responsibilities? Your responsibility, your solemn vow, listener, is as after you are done listening to this in your ears and listening to us talk to George Lopez, you should go, if you have not done so already, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a review on iTunes. It makes it very much easier for other people to find us. You can also find us on SoundCloud and, of course, at BloombergPolitics.com. All right, let's take a little break and come back with George. Hold on. We'll be right back. Great George Lopez is here with me in the studio. George, great to see you. Uh, thanks, John. Good to be with you, brother. Uh, I just want to ask you before we talk about politics, to the extent that we're going to talk about politics, I just want to talk about like how you got into comedy. You know, um, you are, as, I, as I've said to you now three or four times, really probably one of the most famous and well-known Hispanic entertainers in the country. You know, there were guys like Freddie Prince. There was guys yep. like, like uh, Desi Arnaz, people like that who are forerunners. But just as a Hispanic growing up in L.A., um, you got into comedy. It's hard to think about comedy as a possibility. How? You know, it's interesting when you think back uh, um, and it applies to you. Like, you don't ever think you're going to become successful. You don't know at what, at what level you, you, you don't have any money. You go to a place where you're not good. You keep going back. You keep going back for years. You see some slight improvement. I mean, there's no guarantee. You're not making any money. It's like, who, who, who thinks that as an occupation and say, yeah, you know, I can spend the next 10 years trying to get better at something where there's no money and no security. So it's when I look back and think, 
You know, it's uh, it all started with a guy that uh, went to Kennedy High School in, in the San Fernando Valley, and he was doing stand-up at the Comedy Store on Monday nights. My buddy said, hey, this guy Don Nielsen is doing stand-up at the Comedy Store on, mo- on Monday nights. It's it's open mic night. You ought to go. And I went June 4th, 79. I was still in high school. And I don't know what happened to Don Nielsen, but uh, George Lopez didn't turn out too bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah no kidding. Um, you know, I mentioned those two guys. Were there, were, were those, when you thought about like role models, did you think specifically in terms of Hispanic role models? Or did you think about other, was it just you didn't care? It was just what, who you thought was funny? No, you know, it's interesting because, you know, through Cheech and Chong, of course, you know, and through, um, you know, Richard Pryor, Freddie Prinze, George Carlin, Cosby, uh, uh, then you know through Chris Rock and Eddie Murphy and and then now you know 55 years old um, I've met all of those guys became friends with those guys uh, friends with the guys who were on the posters in my wall growing up uh, musician wise it's been it's been pretty interesting you know it, it um, is beyond my own my own imagination so you know America being the place where you you can dream even though probably my harshest critics were the ones that were living with me in the house, my grandma and grandfather, and they both, my grandmother got to see some success, my grandfather did not, but uh, even they couldn't believe, like my grandmother couldn't believe that all of that was happening to me from, she said, from you leaving the house. She just thought me leaving the house was was big enough to like, you know, all this came from you leaving the house. I'm like, all of it, grandma came from me leaving the house. Um, I, like I said, we're going to talk about politics and, and the intersection of politics and culture in a second. But I just, again, let me ask you this, this question about just, you know, uh, I, I find it interesting, you know, the, the America is obviously changing a lot. Yes. Right? And one of the reasons that we have the politics we have now is because of um, is the, the demographic changes. Um, America becoming a more non-white place. Eventually, we're going to be a majority-minority place. Um, and, and so you have empowerment of those communities. You also have backlash among a lot of white uh, uh, citizens and voters who are kind of scared of the demographic change that's happening. It's interesting to me that the, it, that, that, that the Hispanic community, though a much now a much bigger part of the American fabric, than the African American community is, you know, there are many places where there are, where the percentage of Hispanics is much larger than the percentage of African Americans. You see, still see a much bigger representation in our, in our, in our mass culture, in our, in our, in our of African Americans. So, why do you think that is? You know, I'm going to tell you that there's a sense of, I don't even want to say entitlement, but there's a sense of that some people think they're better than other people, and if all people are created equal, that was from a long time ago. Now we have people who think that they're better than other people. I went to a guy's house who is very well off. And the person comes, he says, come over to the house for breakfast. Well, he didn't make the breakfast. He didn't make the coffee. He didn't bring the food over. Somebody else brought it over, a Latina from El Salvador. And he says to me, while she's standing there, she works hard. She's been with us for a long time. She's trustworthy. She takes pride in her job. And I was almost like, you know what, motherfucker? That's what everybody's supposed to be like. (laughs) Not just somebody who comes from El Salvador. Everybody's supposed to have that. You're supposed to be, take pride in your work and take, you know, uh, uh, and have respect for the people that you work with. So it's it's a little bit, I would say, a sense of people think that they're better than other people. I particularly don't think I'm better than anybody else. 
So, because um, I've seen both sides, and I'm not really particularly crazy about either side, so I'm going to stay where I am. Yeah. But, but, you know, I, I've seen situations where people talk about other people as in the less than I am. So that I think that has a lot to do with it, John. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I get all that, but I, it's still just sort of, it, it amazes, it still kind of surprises me again. You would think that, like, you know. <laughs> you would. Just, wait, but you would, I mean, I, connect that answer up to the question of, of why it is that, you know, in our, in, our uh, in the entertainment industry, in comedy, in music, in film, um, why it is that uh, in, in many ways, I think, and I, it's, I'm going to try to be, I don't want to be politically correct here, so I'm just going to no, say, go I'm gonna say it, like the, the African-Americans are overrepresented in the sense of just as the percentage of the population. There are a lot of famous black people, right? right. And, and they have been for a long time. What we don't have is we don't have like a celebrity culture that's nearly as robust of Hispanic Americans. I mean, there are, you are obviously a, a sterling example of one standout person, but it's not like there are 50 um, super successful, super famous uh, Hispanic Americans who've crossed over and who not only Hispanics but also white audiences love. I can think of a lot more African Americans than I can Hispanic right. Americans. Why do you think that is? That, that's a that's an interesting question. I, I I don't think I think that in when television was created, it was created with a lack of you know the, you'd have uh, Marlon Brando played Mexican, Wallace Beery played Mexican, Eli Wallach played Mexican. Uh, Italian people played, Native Americans. So there's always been, it's a little bit askew. It's always been a bit askew. But also in the 20 years and maybe 15 years since I wrote my first show, where as a creator you got to see what went on in the machine, was that through when the ER was there and when West Wing was at Warner Brothers and when they were doing movies and they were casting shows, it's the people that put pen to paper who are non-Latinos who create the parts that they see, and they see Latinos as a subculture. They don't see us as equals. You know, I'd go to movies and and Basic uh, Instinct. What was it? Basic Instinct with Michael Douglas. Yep. Yeah. He went to the door, knocked on the door. The lady answers the door. She doesn't speak English. Uh, you see that in a lot of movies because it is. You know, hey, do you want your green card revoked? You know, you tell me where they are right now. I mean, that that kind of stuff comes in into the writing. So I would say that the people who are the writers and the producers and the people who make the projects always see themselves as the heroes and us as as non-heroes. Listen, in movies, white people can fly, they can <laughs> see they can breathe underwater, they can turn themselves into rocks, they can come back from the dead, they can they can see through people, they can read minds but they can't clean their own house, they can't raise their kids, <laughs> they can't cook their own food, and they they would get lost if you didn't show up for three days. All right, Will, kick in here, man. Yeah, well, I'm going to kind of kick it back into, kind of move over to Trump a little bit, because, you know, I remember <clears throat> um, when he first announced that he was running, he you know, before he even made the announcement from Trump Tower, he was, I mean, I think most people in political media consider him, uh, I mean, the joke, to be honest, and, and no one really took it all that seriously. And then he goes out and he says the things that he says in his opening press conference, and it was just like, and the reaction was like, oh, well, this is now someone we don't need to take seriously if we weren't anyway, if we were going to anyway. This guy's just a moron. Why would he even say these crazy things? He doesn't even knows what he's doing. But to me, there's, I think there's two sides of this. Because what happened, of course, is immediately his numbers went up. 
<laughs> and his numbers went up, and, <laughs> yeah. and there was a, part, a number of people in the country that were listening to him and taking that seriously, which I have to say shocked me, and I think shocked a lot of people in the political media. And so there's two ways to look at Trump in that in that way. On one hand, there's this guy that I think had, that I think people think that has like a lot of deep seated issues, but there's also a guy that frankly, just wants to be popular and wants people to, like, wants people, he'll say whatever he wants that will get him the reaction that he wants and gets him the attention that he wants. For him to come out and say that and get that response, that feels like it is an indictment not just of Trump, but in fact, all of us. The fact that that was a message, one of the first messages he got was, we're going to build this wall, and there are Mexicans that are rapists, and we have to do something about this. And that was his opening gambit to the fact that it worked. And the fact that it worked... It was, seemed a surprise to me, but I'm going to suspect it was not a surprise to you. Well, you know, I'd never heard it in in terms of in politics at that high level, a guy announcing to run for president. But also, you know, I truly believe that he is the guy who tweets out everything that he writes. He doesn't – Mitt Romney, they said that 20 people look at his tweets before he sent it out. This dude, like somebody may have said, you can't say that. And – I would respect anybody, especially a comedian or anybody that speaks freely. So part of me is, yeah, I, I don't agree with what he said, but you've never really seen that approach to politics and to turn that over and see the people that were motivated and moved by it and it got violent in places where you knew that that's been the deep-seated feelings ever since. I think diversity is good for some people, but then it's frightened some people. You know, and I don't think that that can we all become one and get along? No, I don't think so. If you go to the zoo, the animals are all separated because if you let them all live together, they kill each other. So in in our population, those places exist. I'm looking over a country club right now that I know that isn't catered to African-American Latinos or people who are Jewish. That that golf course right there. So uh, those pockets are not even pockets. They're full on bags. They're full on. Uh, places where now, you know, Pensacola, Florida, and, and Jacksonville, and Arizona, and Sheriff Joe, and parts of California, and parts of Nevada, and parts of Texas, where you know clearly the the facade, the the facade of of harmony or tranquility has been removed, and this is a kind of down and dirty, gloves off race to November 8th to see who, when it when the dust settles, who's still standing. I, I'm not even sure this far out who is going to be standing. I thought, I thought for sure that all of those things and all of the things that were said and all of the things that have come on both sides would implode one or the other. It hasn't done either. So um, it, 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 these are probably... I'm going to spend a few of the five days in Vegas, but it will be like no other days I've spent in Vegas. I don't think that I, I will just spend them carefree at the tables. I'm going to think I'm going to have politics all in my in my side view mirror at all times. You mean the you mean the five days between now and election day? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Between now and election days, I'm going to spend three of them in Las Vegas. I don't I don't think that I'll. It, I'm sure I'll be saying to people, remember to get out and vote because I have never been somebody to tell somebody how to think. I would just prefer that. You, I remind you to vote, and you do because you you feel like it's important. Yeah, I guess I guess that's what I'm asking is, 
as someone that's navigate that's had to navigate uh, this and has had to deal with the, the, and a lot of things that you've t- that you've already talked about with us earlier about the, the cast the casting and the idea that like like yeah, we're gonna send, what are your papers like in the fact that, that uh, we're gonna send you back uh, all the screenwriters kind of having that as a plot point in their movies you've had to navigate this and deal with this in Hollywood and popular culture for a long time. So, like, you, you clearly, when you talk about this, you're clearly no shrinking violet. And if this it seems like a major surprise to you. But it does seem, when you talk about this, that this actually, like, I, uh, it's a surprise to me to realize just how, frankly, racist and xenophobic a lot of the country is. I feel like it, but I feel like that's just kind of my privilege. Like, I just thought everyone was good. It turns out not everyone is good. But it seems like it's even, have you, do you feel more worried about the America that you live in, learning what we've learned about America with the rise of Trump? Yeah, I'm going to say absolutely. I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say absolutely yes, because um, if the, if you don't have respect even of your of your neighbor, you know, I have a guy that I moved into this house and I trimmed trees that were in my yard and this guy came over to me and, and said he had a problem with me. I'm a, he, he first started the conversation by saying, I'm a little disappointed in you. And I would say, oh, yeah, well, why, why is that? And then we had it out over trees that were in my yard um, and I, I, I cut the trees and, you know, I said, listen, man, I didn't buy this house to ask your permission whether I could cut trees. So that put us in that place. And then I got another guy, an old right to life doctor who should take his own shot. You know, he, he lives on the other side. His trees are falling onto my house. That guy's pretending like I'm not even there. Like he just has ho- trees, branches falling on my house. We sent him a letter. He's just pretending like I'm, I, I'm not like he sees Lopez. It's like, I'm not even there. I, I, he's just going to let these trees fall into my house. So I would think that when you lose respect and you lose perspective, that you've lost a lot more than you've gained. Wait a, minute, so wait a second. I want to. I want to drill down on the story here. So these are. Uh, uh, there are. These are. Where do you live right now? I live in an area of Los Angeles in the in the hills. Right. Okay. And you. These are. I'm, I'm going to bet that these are white neighbors. Yes. Okay. So you got uh, some white folks on each side of you, right? Right. And what what are the what? How old are they? One guy's in his 80s. The right to life guy's in his 80s. His are the trees that are actually falling on my house. Right. And the guy who's in his 60s, um, who is like felt himself like the commander of the neighborhood, was the guy that came over and told me, as a man, man to man, I'm disappointed in you. Right. So okay. So you're George Lopez, right? Yes. Right. So you're <laughs> pretty famous, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, rich. Famous, yeah, 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 successful, right? Yes, so, so, they, so they, they, these guys who live in, here in L.A. in the hills, <laughs> these white yeah. guys who live on each side of you, they don't look at you and say, "Hey, that's rich, famous celebrity George Lopez." They look at you and see a, a brown guy. Yeah, that's what that's what the, the moral of the story is. Uh, you know what? Listen, I didn't say their color particularly, but these guys are trying to put me in my place. So, but but, yes. but that's but that's what that's about. I mean, right? That's what that's, that's that's about. That, and that's but that's about like the. I mean, again, normal people. Again, you you know how this is, right? The reality is that most people are like a little intimidated by celebrities. They're a little bit in awe of celebrities. When you see a celebrity, generic celebrity, it's like, I want your autograph. Yeah. Or like, man, like the celebrity moved in next door. That's great. Wow, we got a celebrity here. This is more, but this is they don't see you as a celebrity. They just see you as a generic brown guy. I wouldn't see my I wouldn't see my neighbor walking up to Steve Carell and saying, I'm a little disappointed right. in you. I think yeah. he'd say, you know, I thought, uh, you know, forty year old version was great. It was amazing. Yeah. Right. Okay. So that's that's what that's about. So, so to get, just go a little deeper on this, just in a broader sense, deeper and broader, right? I thought that when you finished the 2012 election and you saw how important 
the Hispanic vote was right. in 2008 and 2012. It'd be a good four years for us. Right. Well, and also, you also thought that if you were – the Republicans finished that cycle, and the chairman of the Republican Party uh, did an autopsy on the party. Now, I always thought it was weird that Ryan's previous called it an autopsy because you do autopsy on dead things. But but put that, apart, put that aside. One of the key things was a something that was a piece of conventional wisdom that everyone accepted, right? If you looked at just the growth of the Hispanic vote across the country, that no political party could be a national political party and hope to win without kind of getting right with Hispanics. You couldn't <laughs> just alienate the Hispanics. Just the numbers don't work, right? You, right. Can't, you can't do that. And they reached that conclusion. It wasn't a hard conclusion to reach. You didn't have to be a genius to get there, right? So the last thing in the world you would have thought after the last two election cycles, that autopsy, the last thing in the world you would have thought was that the Republican Party would flock to 14 million voters who right. voted for him, flock to a guy who started his campaign by trashing Mexicans right. and said various incendiary, racist, inflammatory things over the course of the campaign. Like, wh- how it, it, it's on some level, it's not, I'm not being like liberal and condescending about this. It's just, it's baffling on some level, given that most Republicans agreed with the notion that you couldn't yes. continue to alienate Hispanics forever, or you just, the math wouldn't work for you to winning national elections. So, like, does that just, what does that say, you know, about. Well, it also says a lot about the Latino community, because if you're able to stand there and do that, and there's no buddy that you fear coming after you, then you you can, you can stand there and say, that they're rapists and they're criminals, and I'm, I guess some of them are good people, or I'm going to build a wall, I'm going to get Mexico to pay for it. Because we have no big brother, we have no voice that's going to stand there and, 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 call, and call you on it. Anna Navarro is probably it. I mean, it's probably Anna Navarro. Right. It's, it's been Anna Navarro. Right. But Jesse Jackson doesn't pack the punch that he did, and I think the Republican Party says, listen, if they don't vote, that benefits us too. So why go after them? If we ignore them, they won't vote. And if they don't vote, that benefits uh, that benefits our side. So you're saying you think on some level that Hispanics have failed to 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 leverage the kind of political muscle they have there. There's somewhat. I mean, again, I think I'm just trying to say, don't correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like you're saying, yeah, there's a lot of racism out there. But the other problem is that in your community. There hasn't been. They haven't done enough to exercise the political clout that they could have. I would say that there's div- there's divisiveness in our own community. There's different languages. Cuban language is different. People from Spain are different. People from Argentina are different. People from Mexico are different. Puerto Rican people are different. So there's not even the adhesive amongst our own cultures to bring us together. So as fractured as we are as Latinos, it's the perfect time to catch us because we're we're not united in our in our own we can't decide what we want for ourselves because we speak different languages people eat different foods they're different parts of Latin America so i think we have to look at each other not as a group but as individuals and vote as individuals and work as individuals because this group thing isn't working out for us i don't think of myself as a group person, I think of myself as a man who's trying to do better for my own family. So instead of wrapping ourselves in whatever flag we want to wrap ourselves in, I think we're doing more damage like that because we keep waiting for a cavalry that's not going to show up, that we need to now say, this guy's teeing off on us. I'm not voting for him. I'm voting and I'm not voting for him. And I'm going to vote for things that are going to prove my life somebody who I think is going to make my life better, my family life better, and the future of my family life better, instead of saying, where's everybody else at? 
We got, we got to stop thinking like that. Is there a notion that Trump in this may be a strange way to think about it, but Trump uh, could be a positive in like a catalyzing uh, event in the idea that like that this could be the thing that lets Latino and Hispanics understand the power that they have. If they can all like if anyone's going to coalesce them all well, about one thing, it would I, be Trump. I hope it doesn't. I hope it doesn't take a guy calling people criminals and right. to finally activate I mean, you yeah, to, make the I mean, red fo- to make the red phone flash. Right, right, but, right. But aside, aside from that, these people, listen, people work hard. And and some people work harder and earlier than everybody else. And I, I, I just think that for the people who are here, who have a voice, we have a lot of people who are undocumented here who do jobs that, I would say the hardworking Americans don't want to do, but they benefit from those jobs. Everything that in the crops and the, in the fields and things like that, that are jobs that are backbreaking, that, that are maybe the toughest jobs that we have, that other people don't want to do, hardworking Americans, that there is a, there has to be a, a, a variable to allow people who want to work in those fields and in the in those industries where nobody else wants to work, and when they leave, the crops suffer, the town suffers, the the farmers suffer. There has to be a way to to unite that group of people with an immigration policy that doesn't involve a deportation force knocking on your door. You know, I, I I'm afraid of a deport. I'm not. I'm an American citizen, but but I'm afraid of the idea of a red van going through the neighborhoods looking for people i don't know what color the van would be but <laughs> i it, it that's not a this isn't this isn't america i mean that's not an that's not an american be, way it's not they'd, a policy they'd be vans that would be disguised It'd as be taco awful. trucks you know they would be all of a sudden a six-pack of corona in your driveway why is there a six-pack of corona in my driveway and then a net goes over you and <laughs> you just get picked up and taken <laughs> in like a tow truck but but it's it, uh listen man politics has never been a a a, a something that you really wanted to follow like you followed the lakers or you followed the cubs or you followed your favorite baseball team unfortunately the last two years people who care about this country have had to follow politics closer than i think they normally would like to yeah do you like it do you like being involved this kind of forward facing yeah no i don't i don't not like this because the things that you have to say are very negative you know, I, I, I say very negative things about Donald Trump. I say very negative things about his family, say negative things about his wife. And, you know, I, I you you don't I, I didn't want I didn't want it to end up like that. Unfortunately, it has to because of, you know, you, you, you're you're speaking out for more on stage. So unfortunately, it, ha- it had to take an ugly tone that I, it's taken a tone that I would not have wanted to to spend the last two years doing do you think like, that actually brings us to how we should end this thing just uh, ask this question you know i remember when barack obama got uh got elected you had something to do with that you helped him out get yep. elected um you know co- comedians all over the place are like oh shit like we got obama and that's great um happy is the president but he's going to be a real tough challenge for comedy you know he's He's an intellectual. He's a little bit. Uh, he's a little dry. Yep. He's, this guy's not going to make for. I mean, George W. Bush was a com- comedian's Great. dream, yep. right? Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton, comedian's dream. Uh, Barack Obama was like, "This can be tough," and it was. Comedians kind of struggled to get their arms around Obama for for a, a large yep. period of time. They found things eventually that were kind of funny, but not not a lot. He's not like a laugh. He's not like a laugh machine, you know. No. Like a, he's not like fodder for jokes. So, in a week, we're going to have either Hillary Clinton <laughs> or Donald Trump, right? 
and and I know you don't want Donald Trump to be president, no. but but and I know that you won't say, well, I'd be great to have Trump as president because at least we'd have good material. But if he were president, right? What would what 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 do you think it would? do? I can't even imagine. Yeah, uh, I think it would it would raise. Well, who who knows? Listen, you, you I might end up. I end up, I might end up being chased down the streets of my neighborhood with guys with torches, you know, like Frankenstein. So so I would say that the build that wall chance, the locker up chance, uh, I would lose material in order in order to not elect uh, Trump. Trump is president. Right. You, you, you'd rather you'd rather have uh, not have Trump president than have the material that he would provide. I, I, I would rather not have him as president and, and search in other places for material. It's one thing to have an objectionable candidate who you mock and make fun of, right? Which you do. Right. Um, when that person becomes president, um, it becomes a little different, right? If Donald Trump became president of the United States, do you think that you know, it's, it, you, the, the tone of your comedy, w- the threat that he would represent in your mind, would you become a more – you're not like a political comedian by, by trade. No. You're not Lenny Bruce, no, right? No, really, no. Right? So like would you become – do you think if, I, if someone who you thought was an outright uh, – was outright hostile to Hispanics and, and was, was d- genuinely a danger to the progress that Hispanics have made in this country, if that guy became president of the United States, would you, do you think your comedy would become more political or would you just sort of keep mocking him the way you mock him now? Well, also, also you have to forget that. I, you can't forget that. I think that the audience would attack you back. So you would have a place where now you'd have an audience that listens. If he does get elected, now you're going to have his followers say, well, he's the president of the United States. Don't talk about them that way. And in places where it used to be great to work, I'm sure you would have antagon- You would have more hecklers, more antagonists. It wouldn't be as serene as a comedy. Not that the comedy, the world of comedy is serene, but now you'd have people stand up, and I don't think you would have a show particularly as much as you'd have shouting matches. Right. So I think right. it, it changes the climate. Because who are, who are we right. as comedians to mock a guy who's been elected by the people of the United States? The office does does show does carry amount of, of respect. You're leader of the free world. So so their followers would almost be like, you know, how dare you? He won fair and square, and how dare you spend your time on stage where I paid to see you talking about something that I would prefer not to have paid money to listen to. So I think it it, it destroys everything. It's a house of it's a house of cards. If you you would be you might become be forced to become a more political comedian and in the process become a much more controversial figure. It would, be, it would make it would make your job a lot potentially a lot less pleasant. Or, or for people who didn't want to do do that, like Amy Schumer had a couple hundred people walk out on something that was I thought innocuous. But what happens if now it's official? You're gonna you're gonna have you're gonna have a huge part of America that is going to be able to speak up louder and and be entitled and tell people to go back to where they came from and tell people to when we build in that wall and question your ethnicity and question your uh, citizenship where, you know, we've never really had that. I'm going to leave it here. Um, the truth is that uh, I know you're hoping that Donald Trump doesn't get elected on Tuesday. And if he doesn't, uh, that means Hillary Clinton will be president, and Tim Kaine will be the vice president. So at oh. least, at a minimum, you'll be able to mock Tim Kaine's Spanish yes. for, for the next four years. <laughs> we would uh, listen, Tim Kaine. Um, if that passes the Spanish, that, that's pretty bad. It, it's almost like if you're speaking to someone who is maybe hearing impaired, and you speak louder. <laughs> and it comes down to it comes down to that. You speak slower, 
I was wondering, you know, the, the, yeah. it's 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 demeaning in any way. It's perfectly well-suited Spanish if what you're doing is going to Taco Bell and ordering an enchilada. <laughs> so if you want to show off you to remember your that? friends. You, you remember the enchilada? Uh, it was the, the enchilada. It was a burrito. It, yeah. was a, it swam in red sauce. Yeah, the enchilada. Man, the, the enchilada, one of my one of the most grotesque things, even worse than Trump's taco bowl. All right, um, George Lopez, you are the greatest uh, for coming in. It was great running into you at the game. I mean, all of this. All of this because we sat next to each other at a baseball game. Yeah, you know, baseball is uh, – that's one of the things that baseball does. Unlike politics, which sometimes divides us, baseball does nothing but bring us together. Uh, I'm John Heilman. And I'm Will Leach. And we're both in awe of George Lopez. And we're going to bring uh, this this episode of the Culture Caucus to a close. Catch us next week when we can talk about who actually won this fucking dumpster fire shit show. It's never going to end. Don't, don't fool it's the gonna listeners. It's going to end. Come on, Will. Gonna it's going to end. If you it's want me, I'll end. be trimming trees in the, in the hills. <laughs> All right. See you later, Will. Take care. Bye-bye. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.